I'm Jason Hatcher, Managing Principal of Navigator's Western Operations. Welcome to the Western Edge, a Navigator podcast featuring the latest perspective on Western Canada's biggest stories. Well, this is quite a political week, so we're going to focus on politics this week in Canada. Specifically, we've got an election that's just finished up in Quebec, leadership races that are well underway in British Columbia, and there's going to be a new leader of the UCP in Alberta, and therefore a new premier in the province of Alberta this week. I am joined today by Graham Fox, Managing Principal of Navigator's Ottawa office, and Rosa Ellithorpe, a senior consultant based out of our Edmonton office. They're going to help me unpack the dynamic political landscape across the country. It is the day before the UCP leadership results, and this is the Western Edge. Well, welcome to my colleagues, Graham and Rosa, for joining us, our two esteemed political experts, because this is an exciting week in Canadian politics, particularly here in Alberta. I, I just, you know, I'm, a, I'm maybe a little bit, little bit uh, uh, jaded on that, but, but we are going to have a really exciting this week. And it started off in Quebec with the first election of the week, and that is uh, the Quebec election. Uh, Graham, you went way out on a limb and earlier last week predicted uh, a re-election for the CAC, and you were right. Uh, <laughs> tell us what you saw. I think the the uh, worst kept secret, worst uh, anticipated result that we've seen in Canadian politics in quite some time. Thanks, Jason, and uh, thanks for having me. I'm delighted to join you and Rosa today. Um, yes, probably the easiest prediction anyone could have made uh, leading into this election. I think uh, the winner of last night's vote uh, was almost a foregone conclusion right from the start. Uh, and in fact, the CAQ was reelected uh, with a bigger majority uh, than was the case the first time round. Um, but it's a rare election indeed that has both good news and bad news for all of the parties involved. And I think last night was very much one of those elections. Uh, so the CAQ, you're putting 90 seats up on the board. It is a sizable portion of the National Assembly. But when you spent the early part of the campaign speculating on 100 seats, and you, fell, and you fall short of that largely because of some own goal mistakes uh, by senior ministers and the premier himself in and around immigration, uh, there's certainly a sense today that the CAQ left some of, it, some of those seats on the table for them, uh, and that there were ways to increase that count uh, even more. So I think there'll be some soul searching about that uh, as the CAQ prepares for a second government. And not to mention, you know, look, I don't care what jurisdiction it is to manage a caucus or that size of a majority always comes with significant challenges. Who's in your cabinet? Who has roles? There's only so many plum appointments, so to speak, to make uh, any any sort of idea of how he may handle that or will that even pose a challenge for him? Well, uh, right now, it seems that, um, well, the premier has committed to uh, parity uh, in his cabinet. Uh, and so given how few women there were the first time round, uh, we can expect many more women to be appointed uh, to the cabinet and probably new MNAs uh, as well. So there'll be uh, a sizable portion, I think, from the class of 2022 um, and probably a lot of men that we're used to seeing around the cabinet table losing their spots uh, because the second piece uh, of the analysis, is it does not seem like the premier is interested in growing the size of his cabinet much beyond a few extra seats. So we're probably looking at a standard size for a provincial cabinet with parity uh, and representation from across the province. Because when you move outside the island of Montreal, this is a party that won 
89 of the 98 seats on offer. Okay, so I'm going to go move over. I want to bring Rosa into the conversation. I want we'll come back, Graham, a little bit on what this means. We've got the results from Quebec last night. Certainly, one of the first things it means is what's going to happen with that conservative party. Will they be able to continue that on, and what that will mean for the confederation and the dynamic in Quebec federally? Uh, but also interprovincially. That's going to be fascinating. But I want to bring in Rosa now to go all the way over to the West Coast uh, first, and then we're going to come to Alberta in a minute where Rosa's really going to dig in. But Rosa, we, we've got a big week in, in BC politics as well. If I'm not mistaken, we're, we're this week uh, marks kind of the end of nominations for the leadership. And uh, the presumptive frontrunner, Mr. Eby, is he going to be the next premier? What's happening out there? Let's, let's, let's get you on the record. Right. I think so. Like you said, the nominations are closing this week and they have um, David Eby elected in 2013, unseated then sitting Premier Christy Clark uh, in her riding of Point Grey. So big up and coming rising star. He's been a central piece of the NDP caucus and now government. Um, he's been the kind of the chosen front runner. No one in his caucus has ran against him in the nomination. And then they had a perceived outsider, Angeli Apadirai, um, and she has outsold memberships. Um, so he's in a space where they have to catch and basically capture all the current memberships. Um, but now there's a, there's a little bit of contentious issue of how she sold those memberships. So is that a little bit of politics at play or is there something going on there? So we will, we will see, but that might be a, a podcast for a totally different time, but definitely seeing some shift in, um, in BC where we're having a new premier in Alberta. We'll have a new one in BC as well on the NDP side. And the BC Liberal Party just renamed itself to United. So we're seeing that two-party shift and kind of things happening um, flowing across the country where we're trying to get that, that center-right coalition going against the, the traditional more socialist parties. Well, it, it is fascinating because you know this is a surprise that EB was was not coming out of membership sales, I think, with the front runner. Maybe just a quick moment, because BC is always an interesting place politically, almost as interesting as Quebec is. And, you know, when you look at the look at the dynamic in BC, we're only a couple of years into the mandate. Premier Horgan was was one of the, uh, the stalwarts, one of the longest serving premiers around the Council Federation table. Tell us the difference. Like, is there a big difference between EB and the challenger or, or are they kind of similar in their politics and are they different from Horgan? Just just kind of briefly. Well, I think a big difference for uh, Angelique, she's a climate and social justice act activist. So she's pushing the side of the party that I think when we see NDP governments get in place where they have to govern versus advocate on the climate change and find find balanced policies to satisfy not only government requirements, but the, the larger population. So she's challenging uh, NDP governments on not committing and not not meeting their their climate policies, the, what they're what she's advocating for. Um, so very different. Maybe maybe Evie was that person, you know, in 2013, but he's he's been in the establishment for a long time. And that's I think those membership sales showed that. Well, you know, what we're certainly seeing in Western Canada is, is the as the perceived front runner at the beginning of the campaign doesn't always end there at the end of the campaign, at least in the leadership. And, and we're looking at two leaderships, as we've talked about here, Rosa, you just mentioned BC, but we're not just electing leaders, we're electing premiers. And if we move over to Alberta, and our, our Alberta listeners have been patiently waiting because they know there's a big election this week here uh, in the selection of the new UCP leader, uh, which will result in a new premier after Jason Kenney uh, stepped aside. We had a front runner in this race who I'm not sure is the front runner anymore. So kind of maybe a similar dynamic. You can't take anything for granted. You got to get out there and sell those memberships. Rosa, what's going on in Alberta? Tell us a little, a uh, little bit of a recap of, of what's going on here. We've got the uh, the leadership this week. Yes, we are very close. The very long-awaited leadership. We started this. Oh my goodness, 
May 18th was when the Premier's leadership, Premier Kenny's leadership post happened. So a very long leadership, of course, similar to what we just said in BC, the perceived establishment candidate, um, Travis Tabe. It's funny calling someone establishment that's only been elected for three years, but you know, he's long. Um, this is a this is a new caucus in 2019, what 72, 70% of the members were newly elected. So Minister, well, former Minister of Finance, Travis Taves came out with a lot of support, initial support from caucus, pushed his way um, to the front and everyone, the whispers in June and July were where Taves was the front runner. And then we had a very familiar name, but some someone that no one expected was Danielle Smith. And I think in the beginning, people kind of brushed that off and she did what you're supposed to do in a leadership, get roll your sleeves up and sell membership. So while all of her competitors were sitting MLAs, lots of them in cabinet, they were dealing with a lot of the COVID issues, those things. Danielle had been on the road and she'd been gathering support in all these little towns and all the people that were upset and she was translating that into membership. So now three, four months later, we've, we've seen the party membership double in size. Is that all attributed to her? I'm not sure, but I would be remiss to think that it's not in a large part. And the the polls are showing it. The polls are showing that her work has paid off. So we came from Travis as a front runner to possibly tight, maybe not tight race on a first ballot vote. Yeah, no, it, it has really been an, an interesting race. And I mean, you, you touched on something that, that I think is really important. There was a big push when Jason Kenney's leadership review was under place to sell memberships, those who supported Kenny and frankly, those who, who didn't support him. But we that was in the, just in the spring. And since then, in six months, we've, we've doubled it or they've doubled the membership of the UCP. They're up over 120,000. Of course, that also means that only 120,000 out of the entire population is going to be selecting the premier. Again, probably a podcast for, for another day. But there's a couple of other interesting features about this campaign. But we had a majority of women group for, for the first time, I think, uh, running for leadership, which, which made for a great dynamic and some really great debate. Yeah, four women um, out of seven candidates. Three of them were sitting cabinet ministers. Uh, Danielle, former leader of the Wild Rose Party. Um, so all very senior in their, in their roles. And I also think it's interesting where they cover the spectrum on the right conservative side. You know, you have like very much a red Tory all the way to your like traditional social conservative side. And usually I'm going to paint this brush, but usually I think women get put into a progressive conservative side just with the, with our social stance on social issues. And that hasn't been the case. And, and someone like Danielle, who people have put into a, a social conservative box actually isn't. She's quite libertarian. So she's been able to brush off some of that that she tr- traditionally wore when she was a Wild Rose Party. Um, we saw people like Rajan Sani, who was painted as more of a red Tory, come out with very hard economic and fiscal policies in comparison to others. And Leela here, who was originally a member of the Wild Rose Caucus, went on to the more of the red Tory side on the, the center right side. So it's been a very different split. Like if you're if you're looking for a leader as a woman, you have options across the spectrum on the conservative side. Well, a lot of people would recognize Daniel Smith from two other previous vocations. One, as you've already said, she was she was leader of the Wild Rose and in fact crossed the floor to join the, the, the then the progressive conservatives. This is all before the current party, which is the United Conservative Party, uh, merged and, and joined. And she was also a very, very well-known talk radio host. I've seen this a couple of times in a couple of uh, a couple of jurisdictions across the country where they've been successful. We saw it with Eric in, in Quebec, as Graham mentioned, and, and Christy Clark formerly, of course, in, in, in BC as well. Tell us some of the things that she did that was different, because she ran a very different campaign, frankly, than the others. And we really saw that over Stampede here in Calgary. Yeah, it was very funny to see Stampede back in full swing after a few years of COVID. Everyone was back in person and watching the traditional, I guess you would call them 
government rooms, the receptions where we host governments and MLAs and those things. And of course, in our line of work, we do a lot of those things. And I remember being in receptions and people were hesitant to go up to Danielle. It was kind of, are we serious here? Is she back? What are we doing? A few people would do their nice, like go up and say hi. And no one really hung around in a few of the rooms we noticed. But then she left those rooms and she was out on the ground. And then you saw the shift following Stampede. So where others were in the room shaking hands to the group they always knew, she did the opposite and went out to the people. And I would love to see a comparison of this membership to like the last two leadership lists and how many unique new members were on there because of that work that she did. And another thing is she had a press conference in May and just had her next press conference three days ago, where her competitors were standing on a stage together holding a press conference about her policy. So she didn't even have to do her work. They were promoting it for her, good or bad. Is keeping her name in the in the papers. Um, so, and I think every time she was asked a question, it was, you know, I'm here to do the work. I want to go talk to the members. And that translated. And it's been, um, I think, if I'm speaking for her or thinking about her, she's done a lot of work in the last 10 years. She's been here a few times and she wasn't taking this for granted. And she, she brought a team together that, that knew that and they did the work and like their GOTV started right away. As soon as the ballots were in people's membership boxes, they had drop off in seven places across the, across the province. Yeah. Um, other teams tried to do that. We saw like uh, Travis Taves who's doing it. He's got drop off, but it started a little bit later. And it really seemed as a point that he was running on a membership conversion campaign versus sales. And I think that really hampered them and didn't get the momentum that they needed off the hop to stay front and center. Look, the, the perceived front runner, you know, it very much looks like it's going to be be a, probably an early ballot, not a first round, but but an early ballot uh, potential win for for Daniel Smith. If she doesn't hit that forty percent on that first ballot, then then we got ourselves an interesting uh, an interesting evening. But you touched on so much there, Rosa, because you know the Daniel Smith team really seemed to have a plan. They recognized that you know membership was cutting off early in August. So they focused right away from day one on selling memberships, less on conversion. And then they voted on conversion, focused on conversion and, and GOTV, as you said, ever since that, that, that early uh, membership cutoff. You know, the other thing that I thought was interesting about Stampede, and you and I have talked about this a lot, you're dead on on how she, she, she worked the rooms in Stampede, but she also didn't get chained to Calgary. Everywhere we turned, we saw all the other leadership candidates, all the other six were at every event around Calgary. She would come in, hit a couple of key events, and then get out of Calgary, get out there into the rest of the province, sell some memberships, have a rally, give a speech. Always eye on the prize of getting beyond the norm, getting beyond perhaps the traditional ways uh, of, of doing things. And, and, you know, she equated herself very well. And you're 100% right. She threw out some big policies, which I want to talk about next. And then we're going to bring Graham back in to see how that's going to look across the rest of the country. But she, she set some policies. Everybody else was constantly reacting to her. She wasn't out in the media a lot. But, you know, whether it was joint press conferences, debates, whatever the case may be, she set the agenda and just sat back and watched the others kind of debate her her policy. Uh, it was quite it was quite a great strategy, frankly, in terms of, of, of a leadership uh, process. Well, and you say beyond the norm, it's exactly what has ignited the people underneath her. Yeah. They, we went through a leadership with Premier Kenny, who was, people were frustrated. The party's frustrated at it. And so they look at Minister Taves, or former finance minister Taves, and say, you know, you're kind of the norm. And we're talking about this about him being the steady hand at the table, did a great job for three years in finance, brought in a balanced budget. And now, you know, that that just didn't motivate voters. Mm -hmm. Like that was good for traditional, but it didn't motivate. And I know we had chatted a bit about 
the finance side of things and that role that goes with it. Well, you know, look, it's, 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 and Graham jump in, but you know, he did run that traditional kind of front runner finance campaign. He had the caucus support. He didn't have it all, but boy, he, he had a heck of a lot of it. And he's been credited with kind of getting our finances in, in a pretty good place in Alberta. Did he not set other agenda or Graham, do you want to jump in? Well, I, there are a couple of things that Rosa said that I find really interesting. And, uh, and you can draw parallels with the federal conservative race that has mm. just concluded. Uh, and it's and it's two observations. The first one is that the full spectrum, what it can mean to be a conservative, is uh, on display in this campaign. Um, but secondly, that the the other, the majority of candidates and the ones that look like they won't be successful on election night stayed with a pretty traditional view of what the conservative universe looks like and is. Whereas uh, Danielle Smith really seems to have made the choice that she's actually going to recruit. Uh, voters elsewhere and party members elsewhere to non-voters, to voters who had abandoned the conservatives and needed a reason to come home. And I think that's a, that's a, a large part of her success is to build her own universe of potential voters and members that the other candidates don't seem to have taken as seriously. And we saw that replicate at the federal level where uh, Mr. Polyev's campaign clearly made the same decision uh, to his credit. Uh, and that probably contributed a whole lot uh, to the overwhelming victory uh, that we saw uh, earlier in September. And I suspect that that dynamic is about to yield the same result in Alberta as it did uh, at the federal level. So, you know, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Some of our listeners got to be got. When are you going to talk about the Sovereignty Act, Jason? And so now we're going to talk about it now. So. Alberta's place in Confederation, its relationship with Ottawa and the rest of Canada is something that frankly has has really been percolating in this province for a long time. But over the last 10 years, we've seen the latest iteration of this really rise. And, you know, Rosa, that's something that Danielle seemed to really tapped into. And it's interesting because Kenny approached it in his own way when he was first elected. You know, he, he really fought for pipelines and, you know, intimated that he thought that the NDP, when they were in power, were too close to Ottawa. But now we're seeing a whole different sort of chapter, if you will, or a whole different level of pushback towards Ottawa. Tell us about the Sovereignty Act and where we think it's going to go, Rosa. Well, it's interesting, um, (laughs) to say the least. But I think back to Danielle just doing things a bit differently. We've had leaders for how long say, you know, rah, rah, anti-Ottawa, these things. She actually put a tactic in place that no one's seen Mm -hmm. before. She took something and went, I'm talking about it. I'm going to do it. Here's a piece of legislation. We don't know what that looks like yet. Obviously, there's a lot of legalese that goes into it. But the actual act and concrete action of saying, I have an act that stands up to Ottawa resonates to a lot of people. And, you know, we're in our job because understanding legislation and those things is not, not a hugely common thing that people sit down and study Hansard and, and all the different rules of the legislature. So it will be the proof of the pudding for her, but when they put it forward and the, if they put it forward in the legislature, but uh, I would say she motivated people on that. And it, it, it really harnessed the work that, I would say Premier Kenny did uniting the two parties and really that that narrative. But she put the tactic behind it and put the cement concrete plan that no one has really seen before agree with it or not. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting. And Graham, I definitely want to get your perspective on this. But, you know, Danielle has been very clear and as recently as this week that she intends to introduce it as one of her first bills and uh, that she wants to be the one to, to introduce it. So that means that she's going to have, as soon as she's successful in leadership, she'll have to find a place in the House, which shouldn't be a challenge. 
but there's obviously going to be a bit of a period. So we're not going to see a session here until November. She's kind of, Graham Rosa. She's kind of counseled folks to wait and see. She's, she's, it's amazing, right? She's put out this idea. Everybody's gotten themselves worked up about it. Some people have really gotten behind it. Some people have really gotten against it. We've talked about constitutionality. People are lighting their hair on fire. We haven't even seen the act yet. And she's been able to sit there, ride this out and say, just wait and see. How do you think this is being received already? Does, are people ignoring it? Do they think it's silly? I mean, we're starting to see Alberta, even before the Sovereignty Act is even introduced, we're starting to see, you know, Alberta starting to push back a little bit. We saw it recently on on, uh, on gun control with uh, Minister Shandro, who's uh, intimated they are not going to enforce some of the federal uh, approach to gun control. Graham, is this even on the radar screen in the rest of Canada? In a word, not no. Um, and, you know, whether it's your province of Alberta or mine of Quebec, nothing is easier than running a campaign against Ottawa. It's a proven political formula. It works every time. And so it is demonstrably true that the rhetoric around the Alberta Sovereignty Act certainly motivated her voters, her members, uh, and as a campaign tactic, uh, it is a success. I am really waiting to see the actual language of the bill and the text of the bill that will be put before the legislature. Um, if you get into a place where um, you're giving the province a, an ability and you're, you're asking law enforcement to simply disregard federal laws you don't happen to agree with, um, I think that's going to be trouble. And I think that may be isolating for Alberta. If we see a text that looks and sounds more like the recommendations of Premier Kenny's fair deal panel, dealing with autonomy of a provincial police, taxation and other matters, um, then you're on to territory where you're asking for powers that Quebec pretty much already has uh, and that have been part of the landscape for 50 years. So the, 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 the radicalism of it all is greatly diminished. Uh, and so I think, I think it's really important for all of us to wait to see, uh, to see, to see the bill. Because the, the risk for Premier Smith, if that is indeed where we're going, um, is that the wording of that bill and the rhetoric around it will either be a rallying call for other premiers to create a common front against Ottawa, or it will be, isol it will be isolating for her. And she desperately needs the first and should avoid the latter. You know, that's really interesting, right? Because when we've had successful, what I would call, to steal a professor of my uh, in political science years ago phrase, you know, province building, when we've seen provinces kind of rise up, it's been through partnerships, right? We saw even in the constitutional crisis, you know, provinces like Newfoundland under Peckford at the time, working with uh, provinces like Alberta under Lougheed at the time to really pressure the then federal government for some concession. But when a government, when a, when a province goes alone, that isolation can happen. It's even happened to, to Quebec. Rosa, how far do you think this Sovereignty Act is going to go? A lot of people I talk to in the province like it as a tactic to make a point. Like I think Albertans feel like their voices are being drowned out in the wind these days, so to speak, uh, and they're not being heard in, in Ottawa. How far do you think this will go? Because it's worked for Quebec in Confederation, but there's some of us on this podcast, I'll put my hand up, that are at least you know, old enough that in my lifetime, you know, Montreal was a bigger city than even Toronto. It was the biggest city in, 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 in Canada. And a sovereignty movement pushed a lot of investment out of that province and out of that city. Rosa, how far do you think it's go? How, should Canadians be paying attention to this? Well, I think it'll go in Alberta as far as polls and pocketbooks support it. You know, we have an election in, in, the, in the spring, May 29th. If people really start to push back and the NDP grab onto this, and the polls start to drop and our, we see our conservative base pull away from it, 
I think it, it pulls back a little bit. And also, like you said, investment, one investment dollar, but two donor dollars. Pocketbooks reset. Everyone's donations reset in January and they need to refill the tanks right now. The UCP party needs to refill their donation tanks because it's been utilized in one getting Kenny's leadership vote and now into, into this leadership race. Um, so if your main, your main people that are donating are seeing their investment fly or their businesses fall apart, whoever's in the premier's office is going to hear that and they're going to hear it loud and clear. Um, we're in the middle of an economic recovery. People are really positive. I know um, uh, Premier Kenny did his last uh, radio show last week and he, they, he was asked advice to the next premier and he basically said, you're in a great place. Don't drive this into the ditch. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's as far as like, if I'm going to say with the, I think some people would like to see sovereignty go all the way to, to uh, separation. I don't think that's where any of the leadership candidates are at. They don't want to, they don't want to push that far, but um, I think they'll, they'll stay on a stance and push hard and keep that going to the election. If, if it shows that there's still the support behind it. I think being in the leadership race and running for premiership in the general election are two different things, and the narrative may change if it has to. Is it fair, Rosa, to say that this is more um, looking for more jurisdiction, like this is a jurisdictional effort than an independence effort? For, for the leadership candidates, yes. I think a lot of people backing them um, that would have bought new memberships, this would have been an independence effort in their minds. So it'll be interesting how to control that piece. Um, but for our, from the governance stance, this is a jurisdiction effort. And see I'm that, I think, is, sorry to interrupt, right? but, but Graham, I'm thinking that's probably shocking to the rest of Canada, that there is an independence angle to this coming from Alberta. Again, I don't think it's recognized outside of, of, of Western Canada, but, but, but there is something going on. No question there's something going on, and it's something that, that our political leaders need to pay more attention to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in, a, in a past life as leader of the Institute for Research on Public Policy, we did some uh, public opinion research uh, on Alberta and Saskatchewan and Quebec sentiments vis-a-vis -vis the Federation and independence. And in as recently as a couple of years ago, uh, the sentiment in favor of independence was actually stronger in Saskatchewan and Alberta than it was in Quebec. And that's something that is not acknowledged in the federal capital and something that needs to be reckoned with much more actively uh, than it is. We see it in the Maverick Party. We see it in the Buffalo Declaration. Uh, there have been traces of this for decades, but now it seems the electorate is more comfortable with the notion of challenging institutions, not just challenging policies, that we all need to, all of us who believe in a strong confederal union uh, need to start taking these, uh, these matters much more seriously and it needs to be much higher up on the federal agenda. Yeah, no, I, 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 go ahead, Rosa, sorry, jump in. And I'll add on that, I was at a recent um, you know, political event and lots of people talking about the Freedom Alberta Party starting to get seats on local constituency boards, like used to be constituency boards. So they're starting, I think what we saw in the convoy and all those things is people starting to understand how the political system works, which we've been wanting for decades. But now they're understanding like, oh, I can join here. I can buy memberships. I can actively affect change. And what you're talking about, like leaders need to start paying attention because they're doing it on the ground. It's happening. And those ideas are starting. And that's where that's where these movements come from. Uh, there's no question. And we've seen a number of politicians tap into that in Alberta. And, and, and Daniel Smith, Smith appears to have really tapped into it well. And, and I think you're right. I think you're both very much right to, to ignore this from the federal scene, for the federal government to ignore this and, and pretend it's not the seeds of challenge 
it, I think that to be overstated, but I think it's a dangerous thing. These have, things have a way of getting going. Which is not to say that this isn't potentially a trap for the federal conservatives as well. Ah. Uh, there, is, there is risk in this for them too, as they try and make the case that they are the party that represents all Canadians from all regions. And so the dynamics and the dance between a Premier Smith and an opposition leader, Polyev, aspiring Prime Minister Polyev, uh, I think will be a very interesting dance to watch because there are there's a delicate balance to maintain here that is going to be very difficult to negotiate for both of them. Yeah, to steal the line from a, a good friend of mine, we all remember the story of Frankenstein, but we don't remember the lesson. You can create the beast, but it, you can't control it. And and you know, it's 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 so interesting to watch this federal provincial dynamic because that's where I'd like to kind of take this conversation next. What is this going to mean for some really important issues that really have to be dealt with in the next few months? Yeah, it's interesting because I think we've seen a leadership race that's focusing on like really conservative red meat. And that's, I think, if we look at any public opinion polling, that's really not playing with the general population of Alberta. So we're going to have a total narrative shift. And is the next premier going to be pulled into that? Or are they going to stay on the same side? But pocketbook issues, like we can't not. The NDP is now playing in the economy, those kind of things. So they will have a ballot. What the ballot question is, I'm not sure yet, but if it's going the way it is, it's pocketbook issues in the healthcare system. And, and we even saw like neither the front runners were really talking a lot, maybe lukewarm, I think for both of them at best on things like carbon capture, uh, utilization of storage, CCUS, which is, is the cornerstone for both the federal plan for energy and the industry's plan for energy to get to net zero. Um, Am I even being too generous, Rosa, by calling it lukewarm? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's well, it's an interesting question. I mean, Taves have has been lukewarm on Boston. Danielle has pointed to technology, but but hasn't really talked a lot about it. Uh, Graham, what are your thoughts? Because I mean, this is a big push by the money at stake here. No question, and I think we're back to: Does Alberta choose to lead a coalition of provinces, like-minded provinces, or does Alberta isolate itself? And I think it will all come down to the approach that is taken, and what the balance is between technology and taxes. And uh, I think, because on the substance of the matter, an Alberta that leads a group of provincial capitals to force uh, to force concessions from Ottawa uh, for a pan-Canadian approach to these issues could actually be quite successful. An Alberta that moves either too fast or too unilaterally on some of these things would alienate uh, the newly re-elected Quebec Premier for sure, and would probably uh, make Doug Ford's support quite discreet indeed, uh, because these are, these are regions that also give Prime Minister Trump uh, the seats that he needs to form a government. Uh, and so it, it all, again, comes down to approach, and that will really depend on, you know, how Alberta positions this. And, and frankly, this is one of those places where the rest of the country absolutely needs Alberta's energy. But Alberta's energy and Alberta also need the, the, the explicit support of other regions of the country to continue to explore it. Well, it puts Pierre in an interesting position, doesn't it? No question. No question. I mean, the, nobody said governing Canada was easy. No, that's no one has ever said that. You're right, but you know it does set up it. It, it does set up for a premier uh, like Premier Smith, if she's in fact uh, achieves that, 
to really put her in her in a sweet spot to be able to rail against the feds because at the end of the day the one thing i can feel kind of albertans you know rolling their eyes shrugging maybe even wringing their fists at the idea that on one high one side that the conservative party of canada led by pierre can take can maybe take alberta for granted that's always a risk on the other side they're ignored they feel uh from from the current federal government so it's it's a, it makes for an interesting dynamic rosa for the new premier so what does the rest of this uh week look like we've been talking as if it's a fait accompli uh, maybe a little bit but we still have this race what's going to happen in the next few days here yeah so october 6th ballots are counted there's um all your mail-in ballots had to be in by the october 3rd um there will be in-person voting stations for those stragglers like me Actually, I'm not a straggler. I just really like casting my ballot in person. It feels very traditional and good. <laughs> um, so that's counted ranked ballot system. So the first ballot, um, if someone doesn't get 50% uh, plus one, then they go to the second ballot. And that's where the risk really comes in. You know, we see uh, Danielle as a front runner. She, um, she can get it on the first ballot. But the thing is, she doesn't have a lot of support. Travis Taves would be taking a lot of that support from people like Rebecca Schultz, people like Rodman Sani. Brian Jean might be second ballot Danielle because of, of where he kind of laid the laid the tracks for um, uh, Premier Kenny's leadership in the first place. Todd Lowen would be second ballot for Danielle in the most part. They've been working quite closely hand in hand and lining a lot of, uh, on a lot of policy issues. So that's where we could have a disruption in second ballot, third ballot. I'm going to call it, I don't think we're going to go that far down, but you know we've been wrong before we've seen the 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 silent horse come up the middle on the on the third ballot in the last few leaderships where we've done ranked ballots in alberta here so nothing's written in stone but i think the the polling shows and um the gotv efforts just by each team danielle has definitely been been going above and beyond the rest of the teams have very much been quiet or petered out that does that mean they're working probably but um we'll see we'll see the night of the sixth and then after that we'll see a transition Uh, each team has their transition team in place they will meet with a um, government official, understand the top priorities, and then we'll see a cabinet, a premier swearing in and a cabinet swearing in. So what that timing is, unsure currently, but they do have a UCP AGM on October 21st, 22nd. So we would expect all of that in place. And the interesting thing this year, NDP AGM also that weekend in Calgary, uh, which is a battleground, whereas the UCP AGM is in Edmonton at the River Creek. I don't think on, on purpose thing, it just is in the rotation when the UCP does, you know, Red Deer, Calgary, Edmonton were rotated through. So it'll be a very interesting weekend, new leader, new cabinet, everything going on and uh, and two dueling visions on, in both major cities in the province. Well, and, and Navigator is going to be doing going in field uh, to do some research right after the leadership. We're going in on the 7th, the day afterwards, and we'll have some of this uh, forward thought and what's going to be facing the new premier, whoever that is, uh, in an upcoming podcast uh, and whatnot. But we, I think you're right, Rosa. We're looking for a couple of weeks of transition. Uh, I think the teams are set up uh, pretty uh, differently. So you're looking for what number are you looking for for Danielle in that in that first? Where does she need to be? Does she need to be in the 40s? Um, I think she needs being an outsider and to have really effective caucus leadership. She needs a strong showing on the first ballot, like a 55% and up on the first ballot, and then everyone, you know, we saw this with Christy Clark and 23 people kind of rallied against her and then she had a very solid win and everybody got in line and understood that that was a leader and focusing on the next election. That's what Danielle really needs to bring the caucus unity together. We get to a second ballot. Who knows? It might be um, uh, Travis Taves. Um, so I'm thinking she needs to really perform on that on that top ballot. And, they, and I think they know that too. And that's why they haven't taken this for granted at all. 
Well, if we thought this week was interesting, Graham Rosa, we're going to see a, a lot of interesting things in the next few weeks. You know, it, very different approaches on transition. If it was if it's Taves versus Daniel Smith in this province here in Alberta, one having a lot of caucus support, one having less. So going to be so much to watch there. We'll unpack that on a future episode. We're going to have a new cabinet, I guess, in Quebec, uh, Graham. So that'll be something to watch there. And uh, BC is also always fun to watch. So much to look forward to in, in Canadian politics, as always. And we'll be watching with excitement. Uh, Graham and uh, Rosa, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a great discussion. I feel like we could go on for another hour and and, uh, and still have lots to unpack. So we'll get you guys both back on soon and uh, see where this all leads. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Western Edge is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high-stakes public affairs firm. For those of you that are listening after October the 6th, you heard a lot of predictions about the UCP leadership race. Maybe we even got some of it right. But in either event, don't worry. We have another episode that will recap the leadership results with some exclusive polling done by our in-house Navigator research team. Mark your calendars for October the 19th. You won't want to miss out. Our show is produced by Kayla Duty, Zoe Kerstead, Kathy Moore, and Monica Verk. I want to extend a very big thank you to our guests this week, Graham Fox and Rosa Ellathorpe, for providing us with their expertise, knowledge, and the chance to dive into one of my favorite topics. If you've enjoyed this episode, follow us on Twitter at West Edge by Nav to catch next week's episode. As always, thanks for joining us and listening to The Western Edge.